tell us why your technology is exciting and then tell us what you need. You're not coming to us to just tell us a story. You, you, you want something. So what is it that you need? Hello and welcome to the IndieBob podcast, where we talk with founders, VCs, and scientists about what's exciting and interesting in biology and life sciences. I'm Gwen Chenny, your host and a partner at IndieBob New York. Today, we have Gianna from Zontogeny. So Gianna, welcome to the IndieBob podcast. To start, do you want to give us a little bit intro about you and what made you join Zontogeny? Sure, and thank you so much for having me today. So I guess maybe it actually makes sense to start a little bit about Zentogeny, and then I can transition to why I went to work there and how um, my time there is going thus far. Does that sound good? Perfect. Okay. So Zentogeny itself is a biotech accelerator. I think the definitions around accelerators and incubators and aggregators and et cetera can be debated, and I don't think I need to kind of go into the definitions or differences there. We can just talk specifically about Zontogeny and how we do things and how we are hopefully are accelerating the um, companies and the programs that we work with. So the idea is that we typically invest at seed stage. So what this would mean is early stage capital, typically first capital into the company, whether it be um, whether they already have, let's say, some small amount of founders capital or non-dilutive funding, that's always a positive. But really, we're the first kind of investors into the company outside of, let's say, someone like IndieBio, which I think is at that point, it's a small enough amount of capital. And we make that investment. And with that investment comes our team. So what we mean by that is we all have various expertise, whether some of us have been in different operations roles at companies, um, or if you're Chris Garbedian, our CEO, he has several decades of experience in the industry. And with his time or his time in companies like Celgene and Gilead, he really got exposed to a lot of drug development and looking at how companies can make decisions really early on in what we would define as kind of the preclinical work around how to design these early stage experiments and then how you can move a drug forward into the clinic. And there's a lot of key kind of points in that development where you can hopefully de-risk a program. What do we mean by de-risk? We can probably get into that a little bit later. But you can hopefully get to a place where you can accurately design a clinical trial where you're going to have less fail rates. And so we see a lot of failure in the industry. And I think Chris saw a lot of this over his time in the industry. So how could he work with founders and early stage companies? And how could he build a team that could do this? And how could he help them? And that was really his vision, or what I believe his vision for Zontogeny to be. And that's when he went out and built Zontogeny. And that is ultimately what truly attracted me to work with him. And I actually started my career as a scientist and have a PhD in pharmacology from the University of Michigan and actually worked mainly in oncology, working with small molecules, and decided pretty soon, or actually during my PhD, that I was not going to stay at the bench and that I wanted to 
work in what I guess at the time we would call the other side of <laughs> of science and um, took that leap and went to a law firm for several years and became what we define as a patent agent, which means that I took the patent bar here in the U.S. You can prosecute patent applications in the United States and worked with these early academics as well as founders of companies as well as big pharma to help them file their intellectual property. And through that process, I liked that work. It's very exciting to see those new technologies and get to kind of be excited about what's going to come in the future. But I kept feeling like I was at the wrong side of the table. I wanted to... You wanted more excitement. Yeah. I wanted, you want to know what happens. You want to know, you take this IP and then what are you going to do with it? And that's where, well, thank you for my patent. And now I'm going to proceed and kind of go make this happen for me. And I wanted to know what happened next. Patent applications don't have clinical data in them typically. Of course, at some point you do actually find some of that. But the beginning, it's the early data. So I started to make the transition to move into um, what I would also then define as kind of bio, early stage biotech companies. And so I took a job at Solid Biosciences as their head of competitive intelligence. And that's where I really gained my uh, operations expertise experience and then found Chris and realized it was the kind of perfect job for, at least for me, or what I felt like was a perfect job for me, because I was going to get to bring all of my experience and expertise to the table and help those companies take their intellectual property or take even what may not be intellectual property yet and build that into hopefully um, successful clinical programs. And so that's how I ended up with Zontogeny. I love it. So you're the you're the IP guard and czar at Zontogeny. Yes, That's what even I'm though, of course, at this point, I try to push back. I'm like, well, we can always hire external lawyers to do this. <laughs> but at least for first pass. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's nice to have someone on the team that can take a quick look and say, oh, we should kind of dig into this further or this looks good. Or at least, at the very minimum, you're the BS detector. Right, yeah, that's great. <laughs> when they say, oh, we have several patents, I'm like, do you, are you sure you have patents or do you have patent applications? And they're like, well, we filed provisionals. And I was like, right. Yeah, that's awesome. And you had a previous job of competitive intelligence? Yes. Yes. Did you, what, what was that job about? So before I took the job, they, they told me that was the title, and I had never honestly heard of yeah, that Yeah, it sounds like you're at the CIA for, for science. <laughs> right, which is exciting. And so I was intrigued uh, and kind of did some digging, and honestly, the bulk of what my job came to be, I learned actually doing it, which most of us, I think, have that experience, at least earlier in your career. Um, but there are roles competitive intelligence roles. There's actually some companies that have entire groups that are dedicated to competitive intelligence. You can even outsource this and hire people to do um, or competitive. Or very good VCs, <laughs> they'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. To do Yes, exactly. Of course, uh, industry reports and analyst reports, et cetera, are all really good resources to um, someone doing competitive intelligence or analysis. 
And so bulk of what my job was was really to constantly be out there learning and listening to what other companies had to say about their programs. And it's pretty surprising how much is actually in the public domain that we're unable to synthesize. We don't have time to synthesize. We tend to be focused on you know on our programs on what is important to us or what we think is important to us you can't necessarily with your let's say a clinical director spend a lot of time trying to figure out what everyone else is doing you have to actually work on your program and focus on that but there's a lot of valuable information in synthesizing what others are doing. So from a regulatory perspective, what are they saying publicly about their interactions with the FDA? What can we glean from what they're struggling with? And or clinical strategy, let's go into clinicaltrials.gov and compile every kind of endpoint for this one specific indication. And how are they different? Why are they different? Are some leading to better outcomes, et cetera? And that was really what I was doing for solid biosciences. And this comes with looking, reading analyst reports, as I said, or earnings calls are extremely valuable because you get a lot more detail from those than you do from, let's just say, a press release, attending scientific um, seminars, conferences, and just trying to really build out a, basically a huge database of information that then you can start to learn from. Yeah. So I spent 18 years on Wall Street, and I did build an NLP to turn through transcripts of earnings calls, and biotech was the hardest. And you would think that because you have very specific words, right, whether it's molecules, drugs, or something, it would be easy. But first of all, it's really hard to transcribe these words. The NLP always gets it wrong. And then the other thing is because we've had no data to train at the NLP on these new terms, it just it's, it's, like, it's worse than a crapshoot. So this is a job that needs a smart scientist to do. Still, if you could actually keep going and train it, I think that would be a very valuable commodity. Yeah. So um, you guys have been great co-investors, uh, very great supporters of IndieBio. So to Gianna's earlier point on, you know, what's an accelerator, what's a program, whatnot, the, the concrete answer I advise founders to always ask is, what does your fund do? How, what's the check size, right? So for IndieBio, we're half a million right now. Therapeutic track is 2.3 million check size. Whereas uh, I think for you guys, minimum check size is about two. Well, actually, we do go um, lower, so it really depends. The truth is, is a lot of times at certain stages of development, um, I would say we probably are at least over a million. It's tough to accomplish a decent amount of, I guess, what we'll define as, as I've said before, kind of de-risking data. Typically, of course, this is going to be in vivo, um, and those experiments just cost money. So, um, but two is probably about where we're at generally. Um, and that is for Zontogeny itself um, for the seed stage companies. And then, of course, there's always the opportunity for us to, or for what we call the Perceptive Zontogeny Venture Fund, or PXV for short, because it's a bit wordy, um, to invest in Series A in um, Series A's in those portfolio companies that have come through the Zontogeny Accelerator. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. And for, for those listening, PXV is $515 million, so it's, uh, it's sizable. Well, yes, and that was the second fund. So we actually closed Fund 1 back in 2019 at $220. And then we've completed making um, investments out of that fund and are now invest in, investing out of Fund 2. 
So given that I've already sent, I think, four companies your way, uh, what does the pitch need to look like for you guys to be intrigued? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. And the truth is, as um, you know, the huge portion of my job at Syntogeny is what we define as diligence. And so big portion of that means that I'm looking through, um, I, I would say at this point, definitely several hundred decks, um, even just in my two years or almost two years at Syntogeny. So you get used to looking at um, decks that may not exactly provide what you need and trying to see whether or not there's something truly there. And what we tip, what I typically like to do and what we try to do is as long as there's something intriguing enough about it, so whether or not we're interested in the target or we're interested in the modality or we're interested in the indication, let's give this team or this founder a shot. And let's just let's try to hear the story. And of course, as we get busy, sometimes it takes a little bit of time for us to actually have the ability to give you this shot. But we really do try to hear as much as we possibly can. And then I will work, and of course, also the other um, associates at Syntogeny will work really closely with founders to build out what we would define for us as a good pitch deck. We tend to be a little bit data focused. This is not always what you'll find. Some um, groups are really wanting to see the bigger picture. What's the kind of market look like? How much, you know, what are you thinking for peak sales, et cetera? For seed stage companies, I'd say that we have a lot of experience developing our own conclusions around what a market looks like or where, you know, what, how, what we think, how long it's going to take to develop this, et cetera. So tell us why your technology is exciting. Tell us why you, what you've done that proves out this technology and hopefully in one kind of lead program. And then tell us what you need. A lot of times I'll find that pitch decks lack that last component. They forget to tell you that they they need something. And you're not coming to us to just tell us a story. You, you, you want something. So what is it that you need? And is there room for us to be a good partner for you? Not only a good investor, but a good partner. So can we work with you? What do you need? What can we offer you? And how will this then become a fruitful relationship? And that's what needs to be in the deck or else we end up spending a decent portion of a initial call just trying to figure out what you need. And if you don't know, try to figure that out because it does put a hold on the conversation, um, at least initially. Completely agree with you. One of the things I tell founders, you know, before you tell me how much you're raising, company advancements is, happens in a stepwise function. It's not linear. So what's the next step that would bring the valuation up and how are you going to get there? So that is how you should work backwards on what your ask is for dollar amounts. Right. Well, and you'll get pitches sometimes. Well, they have just picked a number. And then you say, okay, yeah, that's great. Can we talk about the use of proceeds here? What experiments are you planning on doing? What's next? And it's basically the answer sort of feels like, well, it's a, it's a lot of things. 
No, 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 no. You had the number must have come from somewhere. So it's it's good. I'm glad to hear that. That's how you direct them because not, that, not all of them listen. Though <laughs> <laughs> that's different. And the hope is that through, if we're excited enough about the technology, that we will work with you to get to that place to develop what, even if it's just that one slide, that's the true ask. But that's what you really need in order to even like get to a place where you're potentially interested in making a deal. You can't make a deal if you don't know what yeah, you need. Exactly. Next technical milestone or business development. And uh, one of the so to all the founders listen, the answer is not, you know, your monthly burn rate times 18 months. That is not <laughs> the answer. You really have to think uh, further on what's the next step, what's the next milestone for your company yes. uh, instead of what's your burn rate. Well and that I mean and not to interrupt, but I think that is a good point because as we think about from Zentogeny, we are hopefully going to have the opportunity to invest in your Series A. And so what milestone are you then raising that Series A on? What have you accomplished? What is now – how much further have you gone in advancing your program so that you can raise that much larger amount of capital to move into the clinic and hopefully get that early proof of concept in humans? But if you're still really far away, if you've received a seed of, let's say, $2 million and we call you know, a bridge to nowhere, there's lots of words, the valley of death, et cetera, then, then what do you do? What do you raise on? And then you're going out to investors and you basically have to ask for money to get to the place where they're even excited to get, write you that $30 million check or that $40 million check. So let's avoid that. Let's solve for that now. And build a company from the beginning that can go out and raise that Series A as long as the science pans out, right? We can't control that. Those are milestones that you can't control. But we can we can work through everything else. Yep. A lot of people think that founders are just optimists, but the successful founders I've seen are very realistic about, you know, here are all the costs and here's my build out and here's my plan B and plan C. Think about the concrete steps as well. So you mentioned founders don't have to have everything figured out in order to pitch to you guys. Incremental steps are good too. Tell us, how do you define incremental step versus just a feature? So an incremental step kind of in their the the work that they've done with their specific technology, let's say? Yeah, so an incremental technology that is investable for you guys. Got versus... it. Okay, so incremental over kind of, let's say, other technologies out there. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think this is this is tough, and it's a it's tough to tease out. It's Sometimes it's easier if, if someone comes to you with this big, huge picture, differentiated idea to then say, oh, this is differentiated because no one's ever done this before. But there is a lot of really good science out there and good programs out there that might be what we would define as a, a smaller step. And that, again, I think the biggest part or successful pitch is can you explain to me what that smaller step is? And I'll appreciate that as a scientist and also as an investor, and I think we all will, because can that incremental step translate then into better efficacy into, let's say, a mouse model? And can you show me that? And then will this hopefully translate to 
um, better efficacy in the clinic. Or let's say here's another one that I think, you know, you hear a decent amount and maybe there's not enough put on this, but is it safer? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a similar type of technology from those out there, the current generations, but you've come up with a way to make it safer, to dose less often or to even dose more often, whatever it may be. Um, that can be enough for us to potentially be interested. You're going to have to prove that out. That looks like a potentially a different clinical path. How much better do you have to be? How much safer do you have to be? That's different than I'm a completely new modality. Um, but that is still intriguing. Interesting. And then do you require that the, the companies eventually have their proprietary tech, even if they're incremental right now? I'm, yeah, it's hard, I guess, the wearing my IP hat. It is, you, I mean, I guess, and there's obviously regulatory kind of ways to protect technology, but um, it's you're going to have to have a way that this is not a me too that's not protectable. Yep. It, it, it's going to start to feel a little bit risky if we don't feel like at some point there's going to be a way to protect it. And probably earlier in the program, mm-hmm. it's hard to want to bring something, let's say, all the way through, through the clinic and then see yeah. if we can protect it. So the hope is that there's – and I think the the USPTO is open and typically you are able and really good IP lawyers are going to be able to help you protect what you need to protect if it truly has a differentiating component Mm -hmm. that is unexpected. Mm -hmm. And if you've shown that and you can prove that out, then hopefully um, you'll be able to get IP around it. Yeah, one of the things I, I advise founders, it's it's great if you have a delivery mechanism that's relying on big pharma to partner with you, but then your delivery mechanism must work really well versus if you have your own proprietary platform that's you know spinning out targets and spinning out drugs, right? That's a different negotiation power that you have with the big pharma when you're sitting down at the table. Actually, sorry, I guess I'll interject again. I think you bring up a good point and that that is another area. We'll see a lot of kind of founders come to us with they have a technology that they want to add on or co-administer um, with another a ther- or another modality that's already out there. And their plan is to partner with Big Pharma or kind of any programs out there that are already um, either or like late preclinical or clinical. And as a founder, you have to think about what that means for you and what that mean, it means for what your company is going to look like because you then need a partner to believe in your technology enough that they're willing to have a follow-on program that could potentially utilize your technology or actually take a huge risk and develop their lead program with your technology. And you may have to prove out a decent amount to get a partner like that to want to do something with you. And so if you're going to do all that work and you're going to prove out that this could work, then maybe you should think about developing your own proprietary program and then use that as proof to go out and um, partner with others. 
or not. Maybe you'll have found it successful enough <laughs> and you'll keep developing your own. I guess it depends on the technology. Awesome. So you are a scientist. One of the things I, I really like asking about scientists is what's a tool that you wish you had? A tool I wish I had. Um, not medical devices tool, but you know, got like it, science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. A tool I wish I had. So this is probably, I'm going to answer this from just a place of working with gene therapy companies, working for a gene therapy company, really being um, excited about the space generally, is a the ability to really assess an immune response to a gene therapy that is actually translatable into a human. And I think this is in my opinion, it is a very tough place right now for gene therapy companies because we are struggling with what is translating into the clinic. Do NHPs translate to the clinic? I think that there's debate around whether it does or doesn't, at least for gene therapies. A human immune system is a human immune system, kind of period. So how can we start to get closer to answering some of these questions without having to find them all out in the clinic. And I have no idea who is going to come up with this and how they're going to develop the way to, to kind of start to answer some of these questions, whether it be in vitro or in vivo. But I think it would absolutely benefit the field. I think generally the field, even when it comes to potency assays, release assays for their product for gene therapy, you're spending an enormous amount of time as a company designing these assays, qualifying these assays so that you can use them and uh, trust them to release your material or assess the potency of your material. And the better we can get at doing this as a field, and also the ability to potentially do it across multiple programs without having to kind of start from scratch every time would be extremely valuable. But that is a big mountain to climb. And I'm definitely not the scientist to figure that it's out. It's definitely the holy grail. <laughs> um, and I, I think you hit something, uh, you hit on something that I'm definitely very curious about as well. Founders tell me, oh, it works in, you know, humanized mice. And I have to tell them that, you know, <laughs> humanized mice means it's, you know, ch the mice has changed in some way, but it does not duplicate the human immune system, unfortunately. One of the things that really makes Zontogeny very special is Chris's experience in designing clinical trials. And, you know, we were chatting earlier that 90% of drug trials fail, right? If he's just able to decrease that 90% to 60%, first of all, it's huge returns for your investors, but also for the founders, right? A lot of your expertise is in figuring out you know, which mice model works best in terms of proving out the mechanism of action to when you progress to large animals and to humans. Any tips on that? Or is this more, is this case specific that you have to talk to each founder about? I would go with that it's specific. And I think I know that our team is built and Chris built the team in order to do this type of work with our founders. So we have what we define as kind of our operations team. And really, this is the whole team. The reality of it is, is that um, those of us are, some of us are focused a bit more on diligence, but then we we do take roles as board members on the 
portfolio companies, and then, of course, our more senior members of Zentogeny are always actively involved in the what we would call kind of the day-to-day of our portfolio companies. And the truth is, is that we, and I mean, maybe I shouldn't give this away, but we meet with our portfolio companies um, at a minimum every other week, almost as an That's entire team. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we have board meetings every week. Well, we, As we call them, we don't have board meetings because we meet you every other week. So if we defined it as a board meeting, it would just be, you know, a little cumbersome. So we just, we have meetings with you every other week. And this includes the board or as we, you know, as we kind of define a board, um, as well as the rest of the operation team. And the way that we can try to design these preclinical experiments and hopefully get down to designing them in a way where we can de-risk the program or get to the right answers or even get to the answers we don't want, but that we at least know that now they exist, is that we meet all the time. And we discuss all the time. There's a lot of constant back and forth. And I guess one you know, where we're all our voices are heard, the founders are heard, consultants are heard. And that's how you really get to some of these very robust experiments. And that's how you make sure that we're not missing something at this preclinical stage, because it does take a lot of different minds and different ways of thinking about things in order to maybe find the holes. And that's what we do as a team. And, of course, I would say that that is individual to each company. There's no method or standard operating procedure that we can just do this and it'll be fine. And then, of course, it will work. I mean, I think that's probably what we've proven doesn't work. And that's how you end up with so many failures. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, so one passion area that you and I both share is gene therapy. So... Um, do you want to sort of give our audience a quick t- <laughs> teach-in on what gene therapy is, what are you excited about, and uh, what do you think about the next generation of gene therapy? Oh, there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, quick, I guess, I'll just, there's a lot of, there's a lot that falls into what gene therapy. We have kind of gene editing or gene transfer, as you can call it, where, you know, you're delivering. Um, an entire gene, let's say, versus editing and potentially delivering. So th- there's a lot of different gene therapies. I mean, when you go to genetic technologies generally, RNA technology, um, et cetera. So I don't, uh, hopefully I don't have to kind of actually educate everyone on that. I'm not sure I'm the best person to do it either. Uh, but that is kind of generally what why I guess I'm excited about it is that it is one of the, I would say, kind of newer modalities outside of, let's say, cell therapy. And a lot of times, we, of course, we hear them lumped together, cell and gene therapy. I think it's really tough to lump them together. I think they are very different very. modalities, in my opinion, even if you want to get into conversations around ex vivo gene therapy versus in vivo gene therapy. That is... Um, those are those are all those are different in my opinion. My kind of more focused expertise has more been in AAV gene therapy, as I guess we'll define it, or gene transfer at least right now. And I think it's still a very exciting space. There are opinions out there, I believe, that are probably moving towards the low hanging fruit has been picked off. 
And we're going to move towards kind of the next generation of gene therapy. I think there's a lot to still get worked out with when it comes to gene therapy. We don't have, you know, tens of or even, I mean, I'm never going to get to hundreds, but let's say tens of gene therapy or AAV gene therapies that are approved and commercialized right now. We have very few. So I would argue that we're not quite there. Are there a lot of companies that are working on this modality and trying to find the best treatments out there, especially for some of these rare indications? Absolutely. Do we know exactly how to does everyone know exactly how to treat these patients and how to make sure it's safe and efficacious? No, I don't think we're quite there. So I think that's where I go back to these incremental benefits to advancing some of these modalities is can you make it safer? That's going to be a potential benefit. Or as I guess some of the um, next generation might be what we would call the um, newer capsid generations or kind of novel capsids, not utilizing what we would define as the wild-type serotypes. And hopefully we'll find something there. But we haven't even gotten to find to identify these really novel capsids. And then beyond that, there's the non-viral strategy. So are there other ways, safer ways potentially, that we can deliver larger genes, more genes, CRISPR-Cas in the same um, kind of compartment, whatever it is, I, I think we'll move towards that as an industry. And it's exciting to look at those newer technologies. I think investors will continue to be intrigued and want to invest in some of what we would define as those next-gen. But I'm still also very confident that there is, we haven't worked everything out and that there's going to be more work to be done even in our kind of current gene therapy landscape, let's say. Yeah, for any scientist that's listening, you know, we, we really need you guys to start companies because there are so many, just like what Gianna just said, there's so many unsolved problems in gene therapy. Um, right now we're targeting, I believe, liver, um, right? And uh, we do have some uh, solutions for um, for blood-borne diseases, but anything that is, you know, organ, solid organ, it's it's tougher. And also, um, you know, we're, we're with CRISPR-Cas9, we're somewhat better at de gene deletions, but uh, uh, splicing in large KBs of genes, we're still, the, effic the efficiency is very low. So if you have any technology working on this, uh, I think both Zontogeny and I would uh, would love to hear from you. Yes, absolutely. And you can go to IndieBio first when you're very, very early, and then we'll take a second look. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, so last question I ask every guest is, what are two, three guests that you think I should interview next? So I, of course, knew you were going to ask this, and so I thought about it sort of prepared, and I'm probably going to put on my kind of, I guess we'll call it my female hat right now, and most likely... I know I'm actually going to provide three names or at least three actual two names and one name I don't know uh, for this that are all women. So I think my first would be Emma Walmsley. She's the CEO of GSK. The truth is, is that as a female in our industry, uh, you spend a lot of time kind of or maybe we don't all, let's just go with my personal experience, is that I tend to be attracted to following women's careers and how do they advance? How do they do it? What? How did she become the CEO of GSK? What was her path? 
like. Um, of course, you always really, really want to know the details of what it was really like, but kind of getting that type of information isn't always something that we're willing to share as um, women in the industry. But I think that that she would be a powerful person to just kind of interview here about, even just when it comes to her success generally becoming such a large farm CEO. Second would be Julie Grant. I another person that I've just followed her career even back when I was still not when I was a PhD because I barely understood what venture capitalists were, but um, when I started at the law firm at Choate Hall and Stewart, I, you get exposure to VCs because you're working on um, due diligence for IP for deals for them. So you, you start to feel, oh, who are all these people? And Julie Grant was one that I started to follow pretty early in my career and then also um, continue to follow her. So it would be interesting. And I think she's local, so you could probably easily get that one, hopefully, fingers crossed. And the third um, is actually you pick, I guess. What I mean by that is someone that I don't know, someone that I should know, someone that's earlier in her career, um, whether that be you know, a scientist or the next kind of Nobel Prize winner. Who who should I be paying attention to? Who should I follow? Who's someone I should add to the the list of people that I watch and observe as I go through my career? Yeah, that's definitely a challenge I'm willing to take. So <laughs> this podcast is, you know, ideally a third VC is a third founders, but the other third is actually scientists talking by me. So <laughs> I'm happy to take on that challenge because I think, you know, I mean, the scientists are the are the real assets here working on the next generation of technology. So happy to do that. Thank you so much, Gianna. Thank you for having me. 